everyone, and thank you for joining me for this podcast. What if, though, you haven't chosen to listen to this, but I've made you? What if, somehow, I was able to control your mind and make you listen to this? Now, it seems like a a crazy idea. But think about this scenario. Have you ever walked into a room and you've looked at somebody and they've looked at you? You've not said a single word to them, but you both kind of know what you, the other are thinking. It's like you're almost saying hi to one another without exchanging any words. And to some extent, you say that's almost like a telepathic thought. Now, what if there was actual science behind it? What if telepathy were real? I mean, would you be able to communicate with someone though in a different place? Am I, through the power of this microphone, able to telepathically send messages or control you now it does see it does seem very far-fetched it seems like the work of science fiction but i call this podcast science or science fiction because there has been legitimate scientific research into telepathy and whether actually there is merit to it and that's what i want to focus on really in this particular podcast telepathy and mind control, specifically the research that has taken place into telepathy. Telepathy refers to the alleged ability to communicate thoughts or ideas by means other than the known senses. So, for example, through sound, sight, touch, taste or smell. It's categorised as a form of ESP or extrasensory perception as it's thought to be a form of perception that takes place outside of the known sensory realm as such. Although people have claimed to be able to read minds or have these visions, let's say, or experience these events beyond their immediate physical environment for centuries, it wasn't until the, I guess the 1930s that psychology began studying these claims in a field known as parapsychology. The field was founded by a J.B. Ryan with the intention of testing telepathic abilities as well as any other paranormal abilities and experiences using experimental methodology and academic discipline. Ryan went on to publish a series of books based on this research, often conducted with a so-called gifted individual or individuals. So let's talk about the types of telepathy that can exist. Well, parapsychology describes several forms of telepathy, in fact. Despite their differences, all types of telepathy involve an unexplained medium through which communication is conducted. In parapsychology, PSI is the name given to this unknown factor, or psi, that is not explained by uh, known physical or biological mechanisms. So let's talk about the types. There's emotive or instinctual telepathy. Now that's uh, the process of transferring emotional sensations so that an individual can recognise the feelings or needs of another person even though they are some distance apart. So this mostly happens between people who share a strong emotional bond like uh, parents and children, marriage partners, twins you often find and even very strong Uh, best friends. Then there's mental telepathy, 
which I think is what people really think of when they think about telepathy and mind control. It's only what I was alluding to at the very beginning of this podcast. Mental telepathy involves the transfer of information through PSI or PSI between minds. This may involve the transfer of information in the present or after um, an observable time lag between transmission and reception, and that's called latent telepathy. Information may also be transferred relating to the future or maybe a past state of someone else's mind. So that's precognitive telepathy and retrocognitive telepathy, respectively. Then there's spiritual or superconscious telepathy, and that refers to the process of tapping into the what we call the superconscious, which is a universal mind or consciousness made up of multiple human minds or component parts to access the collective wisdom, I guess you could say, of the human species uh, for knowledge. Although the concept of telepathy includes claims of a wide range of different abilities, Research in the field of parapsychology, including that conducted by J.B. Ryan, has tended to focus on the transfer of information in the present from one mind to another. That's probably due to the methodological or methodological rather difficulties in having to verify the accuracy of the claims if they relate to events that either took place maybe a long time ago or haven't even yet taken place or belong to some wider collective human consciousness or to emotions that are quite difficult to measure with any kind of precision. At this point, I'd like to mention something called the Zena card methodology. Hopefully um, some of the listeners have heard of it. So the majority of J.B. Ryan's early research into telepathy was conducting using what are called Zena cards. Developed by uh, perceptual psychologist Carl Zena in the early 1930s for experiments conducted with Ryan, they basically consist of a deck of 25 cards which display one of five possible symbols. A hollow circle, a plus sign, three uh, vertical wavy lines, I guess you could say, a hollow square, and a hollow five-pointed star. Now, the general underlying principle is that after the deck of cards has been shuffled, one person would act as the, I guess you could say, sender by thinking deeply about the image on the first card. The participant, having their telepathic abilities tested, is referred to as the receiver. And as and when they feel they are receiving, I guess you could say, the image being sent, they state out loud which of the five possible images is the one being transferred or sent. A correct answer is referred to as a hit, and an incorrect answer is referred to as a miss. Now, through chance alone, a participant in a Xena car test would achieve a hit rate of about 20%. Therefore, Xena car tests require the participant to score a hit rate significantly above this chance expectation to be deemed to have potential telepathic ability. One of Ryan's first promising participants was an economics undergraduate called Adam Linsmeyer. In 1931, Linsmeyer scored 100% on two short preliminary Xena card tests. Even in his first long test of about 300 cards, Linsmeyer scored around 40% correct scores. Over time, Linsmeyer's scores did begin to drop down much closer to the chance average though. It was suggested that boredom 
and competing obligations may have contributed to his worsening test results. Ryan tested another promising participant the following year, a man called Hubert Pierce, who managed to improve on Lindsmayer's 1931 performance with an average hit rate of about 40%, a full 20% better than the chance expectation. So let's just evaluate for a moment this Zena card methodology. Well, Ryan can be praised for attempting to introduce a controlled and a standardised way of testing telepathy that tried to remove the possibility of trickery and cheating from attempts to demonstrate telepathy. However, the use of cards and card shuffling in scientific research has been questioned. Many researchers have argued that manual card shuffling is a really quite poor way of getting a random distribution of symbols. However, J.B. Ryan did respond to that by moving away from the manual shuffling of cards by hand to later using a machine for shuffling. Perhaps one of the biggest problems with telepathy research, such as the Xena card testing, uh, though, is, is that it's entirely reliant on making inferences based on probabilities. So although probability does suggest that the chance of merely guessing the correct Xena card is 20%, that does not mean that it's impossible to get lucky and guess right at a much higher rate than this, simply that it is improbable. As a result, although it may be inferred from Lindsmayer's apparently impressive early scores that he had this telepathic ability, I guess, which only declined over time due to boredom, it could also be suggested that his early scores were not down to telepathy, well, telepathy but just pure luck. And, he, and this simply balanced out over time to a level closer to around the 20%, just as expected by chance. Furthermore, since the initial Xenocard research by J.B. Ryan, the Xenocard methodology has been widely discredited due to something called sensory leakage or cheating. Sensory leakage refers to information that's transferred to a person by conventional means, so other than psi, during a psi experiment. For example, when the receiver has a visual cue, such as the I guess you could say reflection of the um, card in the sender's glasses, perhaps, if they're wearing some. Indeed, uh, researcher Christopher in 1970 reports that Pierce's impressive early performance could actually be put down to the fact that he was allowed to handle the cards, shuffle and cut them himself. Indeed, other forms of sensory leakage and cheating have been identified when using these Xena cards, such as being able to read the symbols from a slight indentation on the back of the card, and being able to see and hear the experimenter to note facial expressions and breathing patterns even. Then there's something called the Gansfeld Procedure. Now, as the use of the Xena card uh, to test telepathy became less popular, there was a growing use of a new methodology known as the Gansfeld procedure. The Gansfeld, which is German for entire field, procedure is based on the assumption that if te telepathy does exist, then the signal by which communication occurs is probably very weak and usually drowned out by the input from our normal sensory channels. So, for example, drowned out by everyday noise and distractions. Um, so the aim of the Gansfeld procedure is to basically induce mild sensory deprivation to allow us to receive this extra sensory information that we would not normally receive due to interference from our other senses. 
The procedure involves a sender and receiver, again, much in the same way the Xenocard research did. However, the receiver has uh, ping pong balls half taped over their eyes and headphones playing white noise are placed over the ears. A red floodlight is directed toward the receiver's eyes whilst they recline on a comfortable chair or mattress. Meanwhile, a sender sits in a separate, soundproof room and attempts to telepathically transmit the target, which is a randomly selected picture or maybe videotape sequence. For about 30 minutes, the receiver thinks aloud, providing a continuous report of all the thoughts and all the feelings and images that pass through his or her mind. At the end, the receiver is presented with four possible targets, including the target in three decoys, and is asked to rate the degree to which each matches the thoughts and the images experienced during the Gansfeld period. If the receiver assigns the highest rating to the target, it is scored as a hit. Now, by chance, a hit rate of about 25% would be expected. Honiton's research in 1978 uh, was an early review of the Gansfeld research, and he found that 23 out of 42 experiments using this procedure had produced hit rates that were significantly above the chance expectation. In other words, there was a 55% success rate which is a full 30% above what would have been expected by chance alone. So again, let's evaluate now this Gansfeld procedure. Well, Honiton's Gansfeld research has been challenged by Hyman in 1985. He reviewed the same studies much more critically, and he found a success rate of only 30%. He suggested that success rates entirely depended upon what was counted as a success. He also criticised the lack of standardisation across the different Gansfeld studies in how they scored the hits, increasing the chances of obtaining significant effects. Other highlighted problems including issues with inappropriate randomization, statistical errors and insufficient details of procedure, suggesting major procedural flaws in a number of the studies analysed by Honiton. Research had also raised the possibility of researcher bias in the way that the Gansfeld experiments are conducted. Wuffett, back in 2007, uh, analysed Gansfeld interviews and found that the way the researchers responded to the receiver had an effect on their performance. After a clarification by the receiver, researchers sometimes said OK and immediately moved on to the next item. However, on other occasions, they said something along the line of, hmm, with an inquiring tone. Now, this subsequently meant that the receivers would try to expand on their description, appearing to question their initial thoughts. This suggests that the interactions between the researchers and the receivers may be open to bias, actually casting doubt on the validity of the Gansfeld findings further. In response to the methodological criticisms about poor control, researchers have developed something called the Auto-Gansfeld technique to address many of the criticisms made of the earlier Gansfeld research. The Auto-Gansfeld technique involves the use of a computer system to randomly select and display target images. This means that the researcher is blind as to which target has been selected and therefore cannot influence the results. 
It also uses a soundproof, steel-walled and electromagnetically shielded room to remove any possibility of sensory leakage or alternative ways of unfairly influencing the results or just plain cheating. This suggests that work in this area has been adapted to effectively deal with criticisms about the level of control in these studies. Nonetheless, controversy still remains as different researchers continue to analyse the same data in very different ways to come to very different conclusions. In this sense, the same issues that were raised over the Xenocard research relating to how hit rates and probabilities can be interpreted in different ways remain problematic in the Gansfeld research despite much improved and refined control measures. Many would argue that until we can develop ways of empirically demonstrating how alleged telepathic communication occurs, research into telepathy will always rely on disputable methods, almost entirely reliant on controversial ways of judging probability and significance. It is perhaps for this reason that mainstream science regards the field of parapsychology as a pseudoscience and the subject almost never appears in mainstream science journals. Most papers about parapsychology are published in a very small number of quite niche journals. Indeed, parapsychology has been criticised itself for continuing investigation despite being unable to provide convincing evidence for the existence of any psychic phenomena after more than a century of research. But again, nonetheless, it is also impossible to rule out psychic phenomena as an explanation for positive results. And although we may not currently have the technology to fully understand the medium through which telepathic communication may occur, it does not mean that this won't be possible in the future. All that is certain is that this controversial subject will remain controversial for the foreseeable future. Well, on that note, I'd like to say a big thank you to Curriculum Press, our sponsors, for providing content for me to use for this particular podcast. And a big thank you to you all for listening. Take care.